0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Peninsula. My name is Adam, one of the pastors here. And uh, looking forward to opening up uh, the scriptures together. If you've been with us around here for a little while, you know we've been going through a series in the book of Genesis together. Uh, But last night, our pastors got a text from Pastor Daniel about 8 o'clock last night and said he was not feeling well and uh, would not be here today. He was sick and flip through the Bible. Actually, we've been talking about it for this week, so I kind of knew what we were supposed to be talking about. Um, if you're tracking with us through Genesis chapter 19 and I was like, hold on, I got to think about this for a minute. He's like, no, 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 I'm going to save Genesis 19 for next week. Just pick something else for today. And I was like, okay, good. Um, Because, you know, like, I'm glad to do that, but, like, I might need more than 90 minutes of thought to do that well. Um, You know, so that's good. Uh, But today, we actually, so we're going to kind of take a break from Genesis today, uh, take a one-week pause, and we are going to be in the book of Luke together. Uh, Luke is one of my, uh, this is one of my favorite uh, parables and passages in Luke Uh, is he's reminding us uh, so last week, we talked a lot about the idea that in Easter, we are celebrating the hope of the gospel message together, right? Like that's the reason that we come together. Uh, this last week, actually, Pastor Daniel, myself, and Nate were at um, another a conference with about 12,000 other pastors and church leaders called Together for the Gospel. So like we're saying, hey, despite some differences, despite some things that we may disagree on and, uh, you know, um, so a few different things, our thing that we, hold central together is the message of the gospel. And that's what we said last week. We want to celebrate in an Easter. And as we think about what that message is, in many ways we can summarize it rather quickly as we go through something like First Corinthians 15 or some of the other writings of Paul uh, where we say what's the gospel message? It is the life, death and resurrection of Jesus in our place in order to pay the penalty, pay the cost of our sin uh, to pay that to uh, uh, satisfy the justified wrath of God towards sinners, and he is gonna take us, and he's gonna say, I'm gonna take your sin, you're gonna take my righteousness, and we're essentially gonna switch places. And that's kind of the, the, when we just could say rather briefly what the message of the gospel is. But as we look in Luke 15 today, we see, yes, some things that are explicitly stating for us our message that we have in Jesus, but also is giving us just a beautiful picture for what it is and the heart of, behind the Father and the Son as they pursue and redeem sinners. Uh, and we are thankful for that, excited just to jump into there. In um, Luke 15, if you're familiar with it, it's probably one of the more well-known uh, passages and kind of parables in Luke's gospel. It's some about the He's given this parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost sons. And he's going through and essentially is relating to something. I don't know if you're like me. I read through this and I think, I can relate to that. The, the lady who's lost especially the coin in there. And she's like digging around everywhere in her house. She's searching everywhere to find it. Has anybody ever had something that you valued a lot that you're like, oh, Where is this thing? And you're like, "Uh, when's the last time I saw it? And you're like, oh, no. You start searching everywhere. I've done that on a few occasions to the point that uh, keys, AirPods, several important things have the little tile things on them so I can like beep them from my phone, okay? And I can find them uh, because a few things like that happened. But toward the end of last year, something didn't happen to me. It was in our family. My wife Ashley comes and says, I can't find my wedding ring. And I, his wedding ring, engagement ring, all together—it's like they're like bonded together. She's like, I, I don't know where it's at, and we were looking. She had been looking. I don't know if it's like me. Normally, it's like three, four days in before I admit that the thing I can't find has been lost. You know, so I don't know how long it have been, but we were talking through that. And we start searching, search the house, search the car, search everything, find our kids because we have small kids. And some of the times, one of the reasons we have the tiles is because they find things and pick them up and we find them in a little small purse in my daughter's closet um, or whatever, you know, like we find all these things. So, you know, we grab them basically short of, you know, like interrogation light shining on them, like, have you touched mom's wedding ring? And uh, the answer, no. And so we keep looking and she gets to the point where she's like, it's gone. You know, like it was great. it it was a good 13-year run with that wearing, you know, like, I don't know, it's gone. And, you know, she's like, okay, let's, we'll, let's think about it. But, like, super bummed, like, obviously, we're not replacing that right now is what she's telling me. Like, don't, we'll figure it out. But she's talking. And she's describing, you know, what they had done. And they were doing this little project with the kids. And she had taken off. And I was like, okay, I got one last shot Our garbage outside. So I go outside. And I take the last bag or two that we had gone through, grab a box put on gloves and start grabbing every piece of trash I can find and out of bag into box. Do I see a ring? Kind of going through this and I'm going through this and I see and it's outside um, and I see like a little glimmer of something. I get really excited and I go and I'm dirt digging down through there through like coffee grounds and Leftovers from dinner, and it's just nasty. Okay, and so I'm going through all these things, and I grab it, and I find the ring, and my first thought is, I'm super excited. I'm about to win best husband of like the millennium award here, uh, and then also think like I gotta clean this and me before I can go and give this to her. So I go inside and like disinfect all of us and the ring and all the things, and I go and she was sitting in the office in our house, and she was doing something, and I went and set it down, I was like, hey, just found this, and again husband of like 20 years at least okay like that so I was really excited and this happened to come at the time where I'm a huge University of Georgia football fan my whole family is and they were going to be playing in a playoff game in the Orange Bowl and someone had offered tickets to my parents and said hey Adam David do you want to come with us I was like, "Hey, I just found out about this today. This is a great time to ask um, if it's okay <laughs> <and> if I <laughs> take a quick trip to Florida and back to go watch this game." And uh, that was good timing on that. Um, and so, you know, we did it in just celebration. She excited. I was excited. Happy for her, happy for football, all the things. It worked out great. And, you know, we're excited about something. And that's the picture that we see in Luke 15, right? Like there's one lost sheep out of 90, out of 100. You got 99, one's lost, you know, some of you think, okay, like that's, that's a pretty decent retention rate. But no, what's the shepherd do? He goes and pursues and finds one and brings it back. Not to say, hey, it's good, but brings people together and rejoices over it. Same thing with the parable of the lost coin. Uh, The woman finds it. She has 10 silver coins. She loses one, searches around, finds it, doesn't just find it. She rejoices over it with others when she finds it. And then we get to the longest of the parables and the parable that we often refer to as the prodigal son. And we get to this picture, and what we're seeing here is just an increasing importance of what's happening. There's one out of 100 missing. There's one out of 10 missing. Essentially, now we get to the story of the father. We often think it's missing one out of two sons. And what we're going to see is he's really missing two out of two sons. He's asking them to come back. So he's searching and finding something that was lost. And this parable gives us just a wonderful picture of what God is like in the heart of our Father in salvation. So if you look with me uh, in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, we'll read through the first kind of portion of the parable together and then pick up the next part in just a few moments. But Luke 15, starting in verse 11, it says, And he, so Jesus is telling this parable, he says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the father said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his Uh, excuse me, the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. We see in the first part of this parable, probably one of the parts of it that we are the most familiar with in terms of Luke 15, uh, the the prodigal son, the one who has gone away. And essentially what we see here, it doesn't take a lot of explanation to see what's going on. He looks at his father and essentially says, uh, I want your things. Um, I want what I'm going to get from you. I want your inheritance, essentially it would actually be better for me right now if you were dead rather than alive because what I want is not you. What I want is what I'm going to get from you. And so he tells him, essentially, I don't want to wait anymore for that. I know it's going to come one day, but I'm tired of waiting. I want what my resources and I want to live as I desire and as I see fit. So he asked him, Father, give me the share that's coming to me. And the father, for whatever reason, I read that and I think this would not be my response as a parent. But he looked and he says, he divided and gave it to him. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. He says, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So what we see here is the son, the younger son, takes his father's inheritance, takes his resources, the property and money and resources he has from them, and says, I no longer want to be here with you. Even though I've got the money now, I don't want to be here with you. I want to go off and live life as I see fit. I'm, I'm kind of tired of doing this at home. I want to go do my own thing. And even as we read that, it kind of reminds me and gives echoes back to Genesis 3 as so we see just the nature of sin in itself and saying, I don't want to do things your way, I want to do them mine. I want to kind of determine how things will work for me. And he goes and he begins to live essentially a sinful, as it says here, reckless lifestyle. We see this, giving this depiction of him reminds me of one of my favorite songs, it's uh, called All I Have is Christ. But in the beginning, it gives a depiction of life before salvation in Christ. And the song describes it in the first verse this way. It says, "'I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still.'" But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost. Essentially, that is the picture that we see of the younger son. One who says, I am going to go my own way. I thought I knew the way. I thought I knew the way I wanted to go. I'm going to make my own determination for myself. I see sin. I see opportunity. I'm going to take it and pursue it because the song says, it is promised joy in life. But it led me not to happiness, not to fulfillment, but eventually it led the younger son To what sin ultimately does is disappointment and brokenness and wrapped up in it with no way out. It says here, it just reminds me of that last line is a good summary for what's happening with this younger son. Running a hellbound race, content in sin, similar to Ephesians 2. Wrapped up, dead in sin, content to pursue the ways of the world and seeing no reason indifferent to the cost. Satisfied and content in that. And as the sin catches up to him, it says here, that when he had spent everything, all the things, you know, you imagine uh, this younger son and the way he's living and the things he's doing. He's essentially spending all the money on him and what he wants. And the older brother will give some description of that later too and some of how he's recklessly living. But also uh, imagine, you know, if you're this young guy, you're out and you've got all the money, you're spending money on you. You're spending money on all your friends and all the people. You're just like, you know, just lavishly living with the things, just kind of recklessly spending your resources. Reminds me, when we were in college, we went to, uh, Ashley and I both went to Appalachian State, and they do meal plans, and not like you get X meals per semester, but they actually give you money. It's like essentially a debit card, and you kind of spend it, and we would always frequently have somebody as a semester or year-ended um, somebody's like, hey, I've got extra money um, in my little account. Like, let's go find the nicest place on campus. And all will buy dinner for me and you and several. And, you know, they were really excited. They got to be the one who's like, hey, yeah, get this, get that. And they're like spending all of their or their parents' money. And, you know, they're doing all the things. So thank you, parents, for that. Um, and so they're doing that, you know. And that's kind of the picture I have of, you know, this what he's doing. Hey, I'm spending everything I want. Hey, you want it too? Let's get it. You know, he's just being foolish and reckless and sinful with what he has. And eventually it runs out. And what happens, he leads a famine, a famine comes, he ends up not being one with a lot of resources and things, but instead working for someone in that land and and doing so and serving and working with pigs, longing to have the same food that they have. One thing you see that, just the nature of sin and what happens as I imagine, the many people who were content to be around the younger brother initially and share in his wealth and share in his lifestyle, I assume they were nowhere to be found when this part came. He was alone. He was deserted. He was wondering what was going to happen. And I imagine he's sitting there longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate. And even that, not getting anything from anybody. But in verse 17, it tells us he came to himself. He came to a realization, came to his senses, desired to realize, okay, essentially a light bulb comes on. This is sinful. This is foolish. This is not, this is ultimately obviously not going, this is going to lead to death. Maybe, maybe if I return and go back to my father, he will accept me back, not as a son, but he'll accept me back at least as a servant to work for him. Even if I'm serving and working for other people, at least I can do it at home. As one author says, he had forgotten much in this time, but he had not forgotten his father's love. So he thought maybe, just maybe, I will be able to come back and I can serve my father so he goes, he begins to make his trek home. He does, if, if you've ever done this before, you have something like really important you gotta say and you're like, you're rehearsing. Okay, this is how I'm gonna say it. This is the order I'm gonna say it in. And he's kind of thinking through, how am I going to explain this to my dad? You know, I've taken all his things. I've told you, you might as well. I would actually prefer that you were dead. I would like your money. I would like your things. And now I'm going to leave home. And imagine at that time, more than likely, never with any intention to return. So he said, hey, that's how I left things. But I'm going to maybe, just maybe, if I plead with my father, he will forgive me enough to accept me as one of his servants. And he goes and he goes off to him and says, he arose and came to his father. And we see this picture here of what this father is like But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he does not even get to finish because it says, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. What we see is as he comes to him, the father does not move him to be, a, he interrupts him as he's trying to give his little speech and says essentially, I'm so thankful you're back. I'm not only welcoming, like, I'm rejoicing in the fact that you're here. Bring everything we can. You know, this guy, imagine here, he was living and working amongst pigs with no money, no resources, journeyed back home. This is, guys, probably not looking his best right now, right? Like he is in the the, midst, the foolishness of the way he lived would have been evident even just seeing him, touching him, looking at him. But his father takes him, embraces him, and says, put a robe, put a ring, put shoes, get the best that we have, and let's celebrate because you are here. Kind of reminds to the end of that same song that reference a minute ago. The next part in that, right after indifferent to the cost, it says, "You looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross, and beheld God's and I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place, you bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace." And that end is what essentially. We see as he comes back, as the Father says, No, what you see now is not frustration and bitterness and anger toward the foolish, reckless way you decided to live, but instead it's grace and mercy of a father who's so thankful to see you back. And we refer to this often as the prodigal son as we think about what that means, often we use that word prodigal essentially as synonymous with the one who has gone off, right, like the fool, the one who's kind of run away, done that, we refer to that sometimes, like he's the prodigal one, he's gone, and there's a reason we do that, obviously coming from here, but the word prodigal, although it's become synonymous with essentially being wayward and lost, the meaning of prodigal, the actual word, is actually having or giving something on a lavish scale, So is there a a sense in which the son would have been described as a prodigal son, living or giving something on a lavish scale? Yeah, he he did that in the way he lived, in the the sinful, reckless lifestyle he chose. But the the main point of this parable is not the reckless sin of the younger son, but it is the lavish and um, uncomprehensible grace and mercy of the father, so in many ways, yes, this is the story of a prodigal son, but even more than that, we can also say this is a picture, a story, a parable telling us of the love and mercy of a prodigal God, one who gives in a lavish scale, not of money, not of resources, but of mercy and grace and welcoming him back in. There's one song, one of our favorites in our house goes, yes, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. So yes, that son was wrapped up and there is for sure just unimaginable foolishness and sinful choices he's made. And in many ways, as we read through this, as much as maybe parents, we would be so thankful to see a child back like that. I know I can imagine there would also be, like I said a moment ago, some level of like, like, just still a little bit of frustration, a little bit, like, obviously, joy would, would overcome that, but that it would not be in a perfect way. But the, the father here, he runs to him. He does not wait for him. He's looking for him. He sees him a long way off. He runs to him, grabs him, welcomes him in, and brings him back into his family. This picture that we get is, yes, while one is caught up and wrapped in sin, through the leading of the spirit, that point where it says when he came to himself, through the leading of the spirit and conviction of the spirit, realizing the state of sin, they can turn from their sin, return to a father who is waiting with open arms. And in that we see a wonderful picture of the grace of God. We see a prodigal God, one who is on a lavish scale giving mercy and grace to those who come to him. But also, that's the part of the parable that we're most familiar with, but he continues. He tells us not just the story of the son, the the younger son, but also tells us the story and account of what happens with the older son. When the younger son returns, they're beginning to celebrate at the end of verse 24. They're having a party in celebration of the son being back. But in verse 25, we see what happens with his older brother in "'And I have never disobeyed your command. "'Yet you never gave me a young goat "'that I might celebrate with my friends. "'But when the son of yours came, "'he who has, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, "'you killed the fattened calf for him. "'And he said to him, "'Son, you are always with me, "'and all that is mine is yours. "'It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. "'For this your brother was dead.' and is alive, he was lost and is found. So what we see here in the next section is the older brother out doing as he normally would have done, out working in the fields, doing his thing, serving his father and his household as he was supposed to. Imagine you kind of come up from the end of a day and you're kind of wondering, like, imagine, you know, like I live about four minutes from here a little short drive home each afternoon, and if I drove here, turned out, turned in my neighborhood, started turning toward my street. There's cars lined everywhere. There's music playing. There's people in my front yard um, eating. And I'm like, what's going on? Did I forget like about a party or something was happening? I'm like checking my calendar app. I'm like, you know, did I miss something? What, what's happening here? This isn't, you know, like this was, there's no warning to this. He just comes back at the end of the day and there's this massive celebration going on. And he asked, this part seems reasonable. He's like, hey guys, like what's going on? You know, but he doesn't go and find his dad. He grabs one of the servants and asks him. He's like, hey, what's happening here? And they begin to tell him, your your brother, your, your brother who's been gone, he is back. And your father is celebrating. And we would think that the response of that should have been a sense of relief, a sense of joy, A sense of knowing that yes, he too had been longing and looking and waiting for his brother to return. But no, instead, he is angry at the celebration his brother is receiving as he comes home and essentially refuses to go in. You know, it's more serious than that, but I imagine in my head this picture of a child getting upset about something and just saying, just, you know, like stomping their feet down and saying, no, I'm not moving this is my play. Like I'm now making my stand here. I refuse to agree to what you're saying. If you're a parent, I'm sure that you've had something like this happen before. I know we have. You know, like they're just making their stand. Like I am adamant in what I'm saying. I'm not moving. They're just frustrated. And you're saying, I will not listen to you now. But what we see again is not a reaction of anger. It's not a reaction of dismissal but instead the father goes to the older brother as well. He says his father came out and entreated him. He's asking him to come in. Come join the celebration that we're having. Come join in rejoicing and celebrating that this brother of yours has been gone. He was dead to us, now he is alive. He was lost and now he is found. But the brother, older brother does not do that. He's still angry. Essentially, he's looking at him. He's breaking off any kind of attachment to his brother and says, that son of yours, he's done all these things. He's been foolish. He's been reckless. He has essentially done the exact opposite of what I've done for my entire life. I have spent every day doing exactly as I was supposed to do. And this kid, when did all the silly stuff, all the foolish stuff, pursued all the sin that he could think of, comes back, and what do you do? you just grab him and bring him back in, essentially saying, that's not fair. That's not what you should do. There's consequence to that sin. Look at all I've done. I've served you every day. And he's like, you've never even given me a young goat, which for us, essentially saying, you've never given me a small thing that I could celebrate with my friends. But For him, you give the best. And he's just frustrated and angry and seeing the sin and foolishness of his brother. He's feeling that it's not fair because he spent his entire life doing everything he was supposed to. He thought of himself, he thought, I've served you. And he's using the word essentially saying, I've been like a bond servant to you. And essentially that's how he saw himself with his father not as a loving son, doing what pleases dad, not in a loving manner, but just seeking to earn from him. He was essentially a slave to work as hard as he could to do everything right, to never mess up, always doing what he was supposed to do and believing that one day he would get a reward for how hard he worked and the good he had done. And he thought of himself more as a slave to a master than a beloved son to a loving father. And so what we see here, in this parable in Luke is Luke's wanting us to look at this and it's wanting us to read this and examine maybe something in our own life too because he ends it, his father reminds him that it's fitting to celebrate, it's good to do so and then just kind of ends there and they move on to the next thing about the parable of the dishonest manager and we read that and we think, hey, like can we add a couple more lines here just so you know, we can't good doctor of scripture, we can't just add to it, right? Yeah, so just like, but you read things like this sometimes, you're like, wait, how'd that end? You read the book of Jonah, you're like, how, like, it just kind of ends. Like, there's, it's like your favorite show that like ends on a cliffhanger, and no season two, right? Like, what happens? I want to know what happens. I want the next couple of verses that say that the son came and said, you are exactly right. I have, I've been doing this not for the right reason. It is good that my brother's back. Let's go in and celebrate, and let's join in the party together. Or even just to know that he said, no, I absolutely refuse, I'm adamant, I'm not going inside, I'm staying in my self-righteousness. But we don't get that because what Luke is wanting to do, what Jesus is wanting to do in this parable is he's telling this this parable to two different audiences. In the beginning of the chapter, in uh, chapter 15, verse one, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is addressing in this parable, first, the tax collectors and the sinners. And for them, he's wanting them to know that, yes, you have messed up. Yes, you have sinned. You have pursued your own way. You have been living recklessly and foolishly. But I want you to know, if you turn from that, leave sin behind, go even in your messed up state and go to the Arms of the loving Father, He will embrace you and He will welcome you back in. And He wants them to hear that. But He also wants the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones grumbling and saying that this man eats with, receives sinners and eats with them, He wants them to know that yes, He does. And your acceptance before God is not through doing good, not working hard enough, not achieving all the things you can. Your acceptance by God, is still of his mercy and grace, just the same as the sinner. It's the one who is kind of foolishly lived. What he reminds us, what he wants us to see, is that we can often find ourselves in one of those two positions, right? Like sometimes we can be leaned a little bit more toward one way or the other and how we live. We can be the one prone to go kind of live uh, a little bit more and that, let's go live our reckless lifestyle, right? Like sometimes people even uh, kind of make that sound like a good thing. Hey, they're young. They got to get some of that stuff out before they settle down. And li- like, hey, th- we like have an acceptance for there's a period of just kind of foolish living in life. Maybe you're kind of prone toward that way or you're prone toward saying, no, I'm the one who, I'm I'm gonna do all the things I'm supposed to do. I'm gonna do exactly what I'm supposed to do. I'm gonna be there, I'm supposed to be there. I'm gonna work hard like I'm supposed to work hard. I'm going to earn and achieve favor of God through the good that I do. And what Jesus wants us to see in this parable is neither of those two things are the attitude we should take as we come toward the Father. The Father invites him in He asked him, he tells him to come inside with him. He came out and entreats him and tries to bring him in. And what we're reminded of in this parable is the bad that we do cannot keep us out and the good that we do cannot bring us in. Those, neither of those are, are standing before a loving God. Here again, he's just saying he's frustrated because he wanted Just the same as the younger brother. He wanted the rewards of the father's wealth and not the fellowship with his dad. In his mind, he had never been wrong. He'd never done anything as he was not supposed to. He's frustrated and angry at it. He he, he doesn't understand what's going on here. And what we see is... Obviously, when we see things like this, we're gonna kind of look to and kind of, maybe we relate, like I said, with one or the other. But also, what Luke wants us to see, what Jesus is pointing to in this parable as well, is yes, despite we may see ourselves in the story, but he's also reminding us, like everything does in scripture, it's pointing us to Jesus. It's pointing us to the good that he has done and the way that he brings us back in. Because you know, when that, younger brother returned and the father welcomes him back in and he starts giving him all the things. He's saying, he's a part of our family now. Eventually, do you know who that's gonna cost something to? It's gonna cost the older brother, right? Essentially, he's already given him all of his inheritance. Everything that the father has now should and one day will be the older brothers. But now he's spending and he's giving and he's he's doing things for the younger brother and he sees and just says, this is simply just not fair. But what we see in this parable is essentially is a picture of what the older brother should have done. What would the older brother have done if he truly understood the father's heart? If the older brother had been in a loving relationship with his dad, he knew what grieved him. He knew how he was staying up at night, longing and looking for his son. He knew how much it broke him to see his son go away and live in a reckless manner. And when he came back, he would have rejoiced just in the same way that his dad did. He would have been so thankful to see his younger brother and wrapped his arms around him too, and celebrated that he was home. But that's not what he did. But that is what scripture is pointing us to and saying that oftentimes what we see throughout the Bible, we'll see someone who has a role that they should have fulfilled well, but didn't. And in that, it's pointing us to someone else. It's saying, yes, the older brother here did not respond as he should, but it's pointing us to the way that some refer to as our true and better older brother would have. And that is Jesus. If that older brother really would have shared his father's feelings, he would have been looking for him. He would have been already out in the field with him, searching and looking and longing to see him, running to meet him. Reminds me of the story. During the war in Vietnam, there was an army lieutenant named Daniel Dawson, whose reconnaissance plane went down in the jungle And his brother heard the report. He was told his brother's plane had gone down. And what he did was he sold everything that he had, literally left his wife with $20 and said, everything else we have, I've got to take this to go find him. And so he went, says he equipped himself with the soldier's gear and wandered through a guerrilla controlled jungle looking for his brother and carried leaflets and pictures of the plane and him and describing to the people in Vietnamese the reward for the news of the missing pilot just trying to see what's happened. And through that time, he became well enough known that he was simply referred to as the brother of the pilot. And a Life magazine reporter described this search and looking and how he had gone out and how he left everything and said, everything that I have, I will use to find him. Essentially, so we see here, yes, the older brother could have done more. If he really cared, he would have done similar to the brother here, this other man, Donald Dawson did. He would have gone away. He would have taken everything he had and he would have said, I know I've worked here. I know I've been in the fields. I know I've done everything every day that I'm supposed to. But for a little while, I gotta leave. Not because I wanna go pursue a sinful lifestyle, not because I wanna go you know, just squander your wealth, but what we have, we gotta take this and I gotta go find him. And that's essentially what we see in the life of Jesus, as Luke will later tell us in 1910, that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, that He was at great price to himself, going to take and say, "I will be the one to go rescue and redeem the lost ones." Because again, the brother's reconciliation was not free, but at a cost to the older brother. The older brother would have to pay a price for his younger brother to return. Similar to the way the Colossians tells us of Jesus says that he paid, he canceled out our record of wrong. He was the one who was willing to go. As Philippians 2 tells us, he emptied himself, being willing to be born as a human, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross in order to pay for and purchase our salvation. What we see here is the older brother in what he should have done and the picture we see of Jesus is saying, I will pay the cost. I will bear the burden. I will bring them back. Tim Keller, author of a book called the Prodigal God, he describes it this way. He says, Jesus Christ is our older brother, the firstborn of the father. He is the seeking shepherd who goes out to find the lost and he is the resurrection and the life who can, lit, who can give life to the dead. He is the heir of the father's house. To him, the father can truly say, son, all I have is yours. He who is the son became a servant so that we might be made sons and daughters of God. He reminds us this parable is incomplete if we forget that our older brother is not a Pharisee like Jesus is addressing here, but Jesus, he does not merely welcome us home as the brother did not. He comes and finds us in the pig pen, puts his arm around us and says, come home. It says, indeed, if we forget Jesus, we do not grasp the full measure of the Father's love. The heavenly Father is not permissive towards sin. He is a holy God. The penalty of sin must be paid. The glory of amazing grace is that Jesus can welcome sinners because he died for them. So here in Luke 15, we see Luke pointing to a prodigal God who shows lavish grace through the work of the Son paying their price in order to obtain and purchase the redemption of rebellious sinners like me and like you. And we need that reminder. For some of us, we need to see that and we need to say, you know, I have been pursuing a sinful life. I've been just thinking I'm gonna do whatever I want. I'm gonna essentially, that reckless lifestyle, that would describe to a T how I have sought to live. But maybe now, you see in Luke, you'd say, I, but I've, I've, come to, I've come to myself. I've realized the foolishness of that, but there is no way that God, the church, other believers would accept me back that way. The message of Luke 15 is that yes, if you recognize that sin, turn toward it, leave it behind and go and seek the love of the Father, he is there waiting for you with open arms as well for some might be that idea that I've tried to do everything possibly that I could. I've always had this idea. If I got to achieve, I got to do the right thing. I can earn my way back to God. And the message is you cannot do enough. Our way into the presence of our father is not through doing good. It will not earn our way in. And the bad we have done will not keep us out through the son for many of us that's just a reminder that we need all the time that when we've been wrapped up in some sort of sin pattern for a little while even though we have already made a profession of faith we are walking in the life of a believer but we know there's this sin growing we're like what am i supposed to do? turn toward the father put that away and he will give you grace also, maybe we've come to the point where we say, I know I've been saved by grace, but I'm still just wrapped up in that regular attitude of, if I just do enough, I still feel like I gotta earn God's favor before me. And we know we cannot do that. Instead, it's offered through the Son. One of the books we give out here uh, regularly is called Habits of the Household by an author named Justin Early. And he describes in there this Thing he reminds his children of also, and I think for us it's just a good reminder that we need to hear too. He says in the evening he tries to got smaller kids and kind of through um, and, uh, kind of start small and going up a little older. He says he tries to get their attention every night. He says you can imagine at the beginning of this it's just kind of difficult. They're bouncing off. They're doing all the things. They're kind of you know trying to end delay bedtime for as long as humanly possible. And he says, but I'm, I, I try to get their attention for a minute. And I look at them, I want them to look at me. He says, I ask them these couple questions. He says, who loves you? And their answer is, you do. He said, well, I always love you regardless of any bad you've done. They say, yes. Well, I always love you, not because of the good you have done. He says, yes. He says, who else loves you that way? Their answer is, God does. And he asked him, he says, is his love even greater than mine could ever be? And their answer is, it is. And he tells them, he says, okay, rest in that, hope in that. That's where our love comes from. There's another author, he says, God, as he's looking to us, he is entreating us all. He's asking for us to come. He says, sinners, sinners of the worldly kind come, and sinners of the religious kind come in from the foreign country of misery and come in from the porch of hard-earned merit, Both are deadly, but inside is the banquet of grace and forgiveness and fellowship with an all-satisfying Father, with an inheritance unfading, undefiled, incorruptible, kept in heaven for all who live by faith and grace and not by earning merit. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, that for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of any work of our own that no one may boast. It's simply the mercy and grace that we've been shown in Christ. So for many of us, that's what we need to remember today. It's what Luke is reminding us, the message of the gospel. The good you have done will not bring you in. The bad you have done cannot keep you out through the love of the Father. And the prodigal father, a prodigal God with lavish mercy and grace awaits with open arms. And it's one of the things we use frequently, something called the New City Catechism. It reminds us, We ask ourselves this question, do we find hope in sin? No. Do we find hope in our good work and effort? No. But instead, the question the catechists ask is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is, we are not our own, but we belong to God. So let's hope, let's look to, and let's find the mercy and grace of the prodigal God. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful, God, we just rejoice in the fact, God, that we have found redemption and forgiveness in you, God, our, God, we just remember, reflect, and God, rejoice in that good news, God, our only hope in life and death, the only thing we can cling to is not what the world offers, not the good that we do. The only thing we can cling to is that we are not our own, but we belong to you. God, let us rejoice and celebrate that good news and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all stand.